You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Happy Wednesday. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz hanging out with you. And you can hang out with us by being a part of the Spain and Fitz nation on the Dr. Pepper call in line. Call us at 888-SAY-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. ESPN Nations presented by Dr. Pepper. College football is back and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. You can call us later in the show when we're talking pressure in the NFL. You can always hit us up at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, at Spain and Fitz. But before we get into pressure situations for coaches and players, let's talk about two coaches that were under a little bit of pressure today talking about a significant issue in the NFL, which is the relationship between vaccinations and cuts, even vaccination and free agency. Two different approaches taken today. Urban Meyer going with honesty, Bill Belichick going with obfuscation, and both of them being criticized for it. Let's hear a little bit first from Urban Meyer, who was pretty honest about how vaccination status affects players. Could you share with us whether a vaccinated versus unvaccinated player had an impact on a roster decision? Everyone was considered. uh, That was part of the production what's his you know let's start start talking about this and then also is he vaccinated or not uh can i say that that was a decision maker was certainly in consideration and there's bill belichick who took a slightly different route did cam's vaccination status have anything to do with him being released no i mean look you guys keep talking about that and you know i would just point out that i don't know what the number is i mean you guys can look it up. You have the access to a lot of information, but the number of players and coaches and staff members that have, um, you know, been infected by COVID in this training camp who have been vaccinated is a pretty high number. So I, I wouldn't lose sight of that. I don't think anybody is fits. And I think the problem with pointing that out when responding to a question where you want to clearly avoid the topic of conversation that urban was willing to address uh, head on is that it feels like absolutely Bill Belichick is pro vaccination and understands the reasoning behind the rules that are made in the NFL for vaccinated players. And yet instead he's being sort of irresponsible and providing something that fits in line with an anti-vax agenda or narrative even if it's unrelated to the question. Yes, you could still test positive even if you've been vaccinated. That doesn't that doesn't change that you are much more likely to be able to return to play for your team and be less affected by the virus if you are. Yeah, that's the biggest part that I, I just have to keep echoing over and over and over again that everything that we're seeing right now from vaccination policy was collectively bargained by the owners and the teams. And what part of that is that there's different rules for players that are vaccinated and players that aren't. So it's not about who tests positive. It's about what happens after that test happens. And so whether it's close contact or whether it's somebody that actually contracts COVID, the rules are completely different for somebody that's non-vaccinated. So for Belichick to take the point, uh, take that moment to point out there are players that still uh, are getting the, the virus uh, while at the same time vaccinated, awesome. That has nothing to do with... With what we're talking about here, what we're talking about are different rules. And, and the, the fact is, if you are if you have a cl- close contact and, and you are vaccinated, you'll be tested. And if you have two straight days of negative tests, you're right back on top of things. If you are not vaccinated, you have a mandatory period where you are away from the team. You will miss games like this is real. And it doesn't matter whether anybody likes that or not. Like that's not even part of this discussion. It's very real on the impact it has. So how it cannot 
impact your decision when it comes to rosters to me would be absolutely stunning. If I know a guy may not be available versus somebody else that is available, I'm going to take the person they always tell you the best ability in the NFL is availability. That's no different when it comes to COVID. Yeah, it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive, and that's Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. You just gave it. The league wants people vaccinated. The union wants people vaccinated. All of the incentives that have resulted from conversations between the league and the union have been in an effort to get as many people vaccinated as possible. It's not altruism. It's money. It's not wanting to give up your paycheck or others' paychecks because you were irresponsible and unavailable. So the idea that they couldn't outwardly discuss what is so clear is just silly to me. That's where this all comes down to. People want to criticize Urban Meyer for being honest. Why? We know what's going on here. People want to criticize Bill Belichick for trying to obfuscate the conversation by talking about vaccinated players who could still test positive. That's not what we're asking about. We understand that every aspect of a player that's trying to make that roster or trying to be a free agent is going to come into play. And that includes vaccination status. In fact, Mike Tannenbaum was on KJZ today talking about how this is not going to stop with this 53-man roster cut. This is going to happen throughout the season with free agency. The protocols are so much more rigorous for unvaccinated players that not only do I think it's a factor in players getting cut, but moving forward, I think unvaccinated players will be signed at a much slower rate than vaccinated players just because their eligibility will be you know, so much more up in the air. Yeah, yeah I mean, that eligibility, it's so by the way, sir, <laughs> it, it's such a big deal, too, because if you are not a vaccinated player and you are a free agent and a team wants to sign you, there's a waiting period before you can even report. So it can cause if I want somebody to be able to come in this week and make a difference, they're not vaccinated. They can't. It's that simple. So it's going to impact the way people look at their entire roster construction. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, that's Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. I get the feeling, you know, we're going to have a little bit of uproar about this in the immediacy, and then eventually it's all going to settle down because even those who might be criticizing Urban Meyer for his honesty understand, and I don't think there is a leg to stand on for those who are arguing that there will be a quote-unquote investigation from the NFLP or from NFLPA or anyone else on this. It's very clear. It has been made clear, including, and to your point, in CBA negotiations that everyone has agreed upon that there is value in being vaccinated and to try to argue otherwise, I think, is an empty, empty effort from anybody. So I think this is all going to die down pretty quick. Uh, speaking of uh, of uh, things that are going to become um, I'm not even going to try to transition. Let's just talk about the Saints and Packers. <laughs> my brain is broken today. My transition ability is gone. Uh, but I do find it funny that I was reading a story on NOLA.com by Jeff Duncan about the decision-making around where they might move the Saints-Packers game because of the the results and the impact of the hurricane. And uh, Florida became a target for a number of reasons. Three of the league's home stadiums are available. They need to follow specific NFL rules. It needs to be in an NFL stadium because of replay and other things. And the Saints thought that the heat and humidity would be a bit of a home field advantage for New Orleans over the Packers. In addition to that, Aaron Rodgers has a 3-4 and four record and a 78.1 passer rating in the state. They also looked at which location out of the Florida places would be best. They were familiar with uh, Raymond James Stadium, where, where, where the Bucks play. They have a 13-7 and seven record there, but they were worried that there would be too many rivals of the NFC South that were Bucks turned Packers fans, making it maybe a hostile environment. They also thought Miami would be too nice of a place to offer to Green Bay fans. So 
They had a staffer look up how difficult it would be to get to all three places in Florida, all the itineraries and costs on Expedia for Greenblay flights and and places to stay in Jacksonville, Miami, and Tampa. Jacksonville, the most difficult and costly destination for Green Bay fans. And here we go. That's going to be the home to that game, that week one game between the Saints and Packers. I love every ounce of that, by the way. I want them looking at it because you're losing a home game. So if you're going to lose a home game, then you might as well make it as close to a home game as you can possibly have. I love that level of due diligence just to make sure somebody else's life is difficult. Heck yeah. Yeah, and if you're looking at the Saints playing in a dome in NOLA, I think it's their practices are regularly in those 100-degree temperatures, and they figure uh, it's not quite the same in Green Bay. Although I'll tell you, someone in the Midwest, it gets steamy steamy and stinky so uh we'll see if it ends up being a bonus for them certainly not ideal for the saints not to be able to start in their home field but uh try to make it as difficult as they can on aaron Rodgers and the packers coming up next we're going to head out to the u.s open big match has just gotten underway there we'll get some expert advice on everything going down you're listening to the spain and fitz podcast fans are back at the U.S. Open, but a lot of big names are not. No Serena, no Roger, no Rafa, no Venus. That foursome has a combined 17 singles titles at the U.S. Open, but all out due to injury in 2021, welcoming in sort of a new era. Some will be back for sure, but there's also a a good look at some of the youngsters that are in the tournament. And of course, as always, Djokovic as well. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Guests are joining us on the Goodyear Hotline, brought to you by Goodyear, making the plays that move you forward. Goodyear, more driven, including our next guest, ESPN tennis analyst, Patrick McEnroe. Patrick, thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Hope you're doing well, Sarah. Jason, how's it going? We are doing all right. We're trying to understand the sort of historical significance, if there is any, to those names I just listed off not being a part of the U.S. Open. How much is it just they're all getting older and it was circumstantial that injuries hit at the same time? Or is it a a, a time gone by when we can anticipate seeing those four all together again in a big tournament? Well, hopefully we'll see all four of them again. But I think most of what you said is 100 percent accurate. They're getting older. Um, obviously all of them getting injured at the same time wouldn't have happened 15 years ago when they're in their mid twenties, but it, it tends to happen when you get to 40 or close to 40. And that's where all four of them are at. Nadal obviously got a few years left to get there, but I think, I mean, hopefully you'll see him. I mean, I think there's every intention for all four of them to come back. You know, Venus obviously has fallen out of the top hundred. The other three, certainly if they were healthy, could be contenders to win these titles. That being said, I don't think any one of them would have been the favorite to win this title on the men's or the women's side. So from a competitive standpoint, I don't think it, it tilts the balance really that much as far as who can win this tournament this year. But certainly from the, from the factor of, of the buzz that they all create when they walk onto the court at a, at a Grand Slam tournament, um, you, know, you lose that. But as we're seeing the first couple of days of the U.S. Open, there's been some unbelievable matches, a lot of buzz, a lot of energy, fans are back. So I think the storylines will continue to progress. And obviously you've got Novak Djokovic going for something that none of those players has ever been able to do. No one's able to do it on the men's side since 1969, win all four Grand Slam tournaments in one year. That's called the Grand Slam. 
You know, it, it's funny, Patrick, when, you, when you're talking, I keep thinking about the difference between greatness and brand greatness. Not to say that all of these legends aren't great, but still there's a brand greatness. Does this sort of kickstart somebody else in your mind that can step up and be the next great brand for tennis as they continue to grow? That's a great question, Jason. I mean, Coco Goff is certainly one of those up-and-coming young players, you know, who's got a ways to go before she becomes a great player, but she's already – to your point, a great brand. She's um, she's fun to watch. She's so young. Obviously, she you know burst through at 15. Now she's a ripe old 17. So she's still <laughs> super young. She just she just starting tonight her match against Sloane Stevens. So she's one of those players that uh, moves the needle. You know, for us at ESPN, as far as um, uh, viewership goes and and the, and the buzz that she creates. I don't think she's ready uh, to win a major just yet. Um, but for the men's side, I think it's more interesting because uh, I think you've got, you know, players that, that aren't American, for example, um, that, that are at a higher level just from a standpoint competitively than Coco is at the moment. Obviously, I'm talking about the number two seed, Medvedev. I'm talking about Zverev, the four seed, Sitsipas. I'll be calling his match later tonight with my brother. Uh, he's the three seed. So those guys are guys that are at the level where they obviously can win a major. For them to become that brand that the players were missing, they're going to have to win a lot more majors. So that's going to take a couple of years for that to happen. Uh, but there's certainly sort of a, ch- a turning that you feel coming in the men's tennis world. In the women's side, obviously, you've got Osaka, who is already a brand and already a, a four-time Grand Slam winner. So I think she's someone that, along with Coco Gauff, moved the needle for women's tennis. Ash Barty, who's the number one seed, uh, and the current Wimbledon champion, you know, she doesn't have the same star power uh, outside of her country of Australia that Osaka and Coco Gauff do, but she's an amazing player and certainly someone who's very capable of winning this tournament. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're talking to Patrick McEnroe as the U.S. Open is underway. And yeah, very early in that match between Sloan Stevens and Coco Gauff, you mentioned Coco, especially for her age, her voice is incredible, you know, out speaking doing activism on behalf of Black Lives Matter and other causes that matter to her. Same for Naomi Osaka, some very outspoken young stars on this on this tour. Uh, Sloane Stevens sort of burst into the, onto the scene and then has been a little bit more overshadowed lately. What do you see from her tennis-wise as to whether or not she can get herself back into the higher rankings and be a real contender? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I thought Sloane was going to be there close to the top for uh, many years, so... She fell off a little bit. She's been working a lot more diligently, you know, this year. Obviously, COVID hit a lot of players hard. It hit her hard because she lost a a few family members uh, in the last year and a half. So that was obviously something she had to adjust to. But she's got incredible ball-striking ability. You know, not only did she win the U.S. Open, she almost won the French Open. She was a set and a break up on Simona Halep the following year. So she can get back there. Um, There's no doubt about it. She's in her mid-20s. She's still relatively young for a tennis player and we're seeing these great stars you know play as, as we talked about at the top into their mid-30s 40s so sloan can get back to she doesn't have as much sure uh firepower as coco goff does but she's a great ball striker she moves well she's a very intelligent player when when she feels confident out there so i think it's an interesting matchup i think goff i'm, I'm giving her the slight edge in this one tonight but there's no doubt that stevens if she stays committed and, and, and is training diligently and working hard. There's no doubt that, she, that there's no reason that she can't get back into the top 10. 
So one of the people that seemed to be bursting on the scenes for a lot of us, Ash Barty, I, I don't think a lot of us know much about her. So sort of give me a breakdown on, on how she got here and, and what you expect from her moving forward. Well, she was, a, she was a junior champion growing up, and it's actually a very interesting story. You know, in her late teenage years, um, she actually walked away from tennis for a year and a half or so and took up cricket. I mean, she's an amazing <laughs> um, athlete, and she's unbelievably good at cricket. She's great at golf, so she has amazing hand-eye coordination. And then when she came back to tennis, uh, you know, she found the love and the joy of, of playing the game, competing at the game. So she's an excellent athlete. Uh, she moves extremely well. She has a lot of more variety than most of the other top women players. She can play the backhand slice. She's got an excellent serve. She can come to net. So she, she really maneuvers the ball about as well as anyone. She's got a powerful forehand. Uh, but she's just a great tactician on the court. And because she plays so many different uh, spins and speeds, uh, she's able to disrupt a lot of her opponents. So she's a great, great player. Uh, I think she can stay right there near the top for a while because she can play well on every surface. She's won the French Open as well. And um, she looks very comfortable here on the hard court. She won in Cincinnati, one of the big warm-up events. Uh, so there's no reason that she can't stay close to the top. Now there's some other players that I think just have more pure um, firepower like golf, like Osaka, if they're playing well, but Barty has the type of game that can, can deal with that, can absorb pace and can, uh, you know, get those big hitting players out of their comfort zone a lot more easily than most players on the tour. Yeah. And you mentioned it. She has had a ton of success and a lot of us maybe not quite as up to date on it because she isn't uh, doesn't have that narrative and that American side to like connect with us. But as far as tournaments of late, she has been crushing it. Uh, thanks so much for the insight. Enjoy the call tonight. And, and thanks for coming on. Anytime. Thank you all for having me. Patrick thanks, McEnroe, Mark. ESPN tennis analyst with us here on Spain and Fitz on the Goodyear Hotline. Fitz, you know, he mentioned Djokovic. Worth remembering that the last we saw of Djokovic, the last tournament he was in was Tokyo, and he lost in spectacular fashion, broke his racket in the bronze medal match, withdrew from mm. the doubles match because of a shoulder injury. Everyone was all over him for his lack of, uh, of sportsmanship and class, and he's back to try to win. We'll see if he can keep it together here at the U.S. Open for that calendar slam. Coming up. An author is going to tell us about a life-changing moment. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain with you as always. I think Jason Fitz is with us. We'll find out if something happened to him. I think he is coming back soon, but we just lost him for a minute there. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. With insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and commercial vehicles at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Who needs fits when you got Drew McGarry from the San Francisco Gate and also a defector media columnist, the acclaimed author of The Hike, and he's got a new book called The Night the Lights Went Out. We're going to have him rip on our teams like he does in such great fashion in a little bit, but let's talk about the book, Drew, and hopefully Fitz will join us again. But um, it, I remember hearing, you know, just in very vague details that something had happened to you at the Deadspin Awards. And for for weeks or maybe longer than that, it felt like there was no info, just a lot of concern about whether you'd ever be okay. And what was it like to write about all that and to try to piece together a near traumatic or I guess near fatal traumatic brain injury 
that uh, that you don't remember most of? Well, in, in my case, it was quite useful because uh, at the night of the Desmond Awards in 2018, I, uh, I went to an after party. I went to go uh, went to go to the head, and then I woke up what I thought was the next day in a hospital. I had a bunch of tubes sticking out of me and bandages around my head, and I thought I'd gotten into a fist fight and lost. And uh, <laughs> and I asked the nurse what the hell happened to me, and she said that it was not the next day. It was two weeks later. So wow. I had not I, – I didn't know what had happened. I'd been in a coma for two weeks, but it passed, you know, as quickly as a power nap had. So for the book, um, you know, I you know I, I had written once about what had happened, but it been all through my perspective. And, you know, I was in a coma for two weeks, and when I woke up, I was absolutely zonked out of my mind on coma drugs like fentanyl and stuff like that. So I had to go back and I had to interview my family, um, my doctors, and my friends uh, who were dead spin at the time. And then I'll work with me at Defector, um, who basically saved my life that night. Like they saw me in the hallway with a bunch of blood behind my head and rushed to get help right away because if, if they had not been there, um, a lot of any other person, including the paramedics, would have assumed that I was simply drunk. And the paramedics did indeed assume I was drunk. And Megan Greenwell ran Deadspin at the time had to beg and plead with them to double check me and give me a CAT scan. And when they got the CAT scan, they were like, oh, he's not drunk. Oh, he's in big trouble. And wow. then they had to rush me to another hospital uh, so they could saw my head open and uh, feast on the goo inside. So it was, it, you know, it was traumatic for everyone who saw that happen. But for me, it was a walk in the park because I was asleep. I don't remember any of that. Right, right. So in some ways, it was this weird thing where I had to go back and sort of reverse engineer my own trauma by hearing it from them firsthand. And it's not fun to do that, particularly for them, and particularly to interview them in the middle of a pandemic when they're dealing with a pandemic. Um, but it was, you know, it's useful for me because it's always good to learn about yourself, no matter the good and the bad, because you can always use it. And it'll always make you a deeper, you know, uh, ultimately a happier person. But, you know, you have to, if you're like me, you have to deal with brain damage before you get there. Right, right. Just slightly, slightly more involved than most people just go into therapy. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. I, there's Jason Fitz. The yeah, book is I'm called back. The Night the Lights Went Out. Um, you mentioned, and I remember reading that there were colleagues from Deadspin that essentially saved your life because, and, and most of us on the outside thought, oh, this moron, you know, drank too much at the Deadspin Awards and fell. And it wasn't until when some of the details came out that we found out what do you know exactly about the cause, if anything, and what are the lingering effects of it? Uh, there's no, even today, doctors cannot tell me what happened. I, I fractured my skull in three places, fractured the temporal bone in my skull, which is the hardest bone in the body. And the way you usually break your temporal bone, and men break it three times more often than women, as you might have suspected, mm -hmm. uh, that you have to be assaulted shot or get into a car accident. And all I did was fall from a remarkable height of zero feet and bash my head against the floor. And that seemed to have done the trick. Wow. It, and I suffered what was called a brain hemorrhage, uh, which, you know, blood came into my brain. And doctors to this day still don't know if I had the hemorrhage first or if I collapsed and fractured my skull first. And they, they don't know. And, and they won't know. I just have to sort of deal with that mystery box until like J.J. Abrams opens it for me when I get up to heaven someday. Yeah, how do you deal with that mystery box, though? Because it feels like that's the sort of thing that, you know, you can just continually overanalyze in life. You could. And, you know, uh, you know, frankly, it would have 
you know, there, there's certainly a good, like, sort of, like, oh, well, did it turn out that you were assaulted by, you know, some 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 belligerent mailman or something like that, and that's why you, you know, that's why you had your accident. But there isn't anything there, and I had to spend so much time recovering and focusing on just learning how to be myself again, even though I had gone half deaf, I'd lost my sense of smell, I'd lost part of my sense of taste, and I haven't gotten any of those things back. Um, so dealing with all that, you know, that tends to preoccupy a lot of your time. So the why of it gets a, gets a little lost, and I could go nuts trying to figure it out for the rest of my life. Like, I could have the beautiful mind wall in my office, you know, <laughs> trying to piece it all together. Yes. But there was no point. Like, it's just it's not gonna it's not gonna get me anywhere because I'm here and I'm still alive. So that's the good part. I'm really fascinated to read this book and and how you have dealt with the the remaining results of it, um, piecing it back together and talking to your family. And I think what you said about how it makes you a better person to have to do that deep dive is interesting too. Uh, aside, I was in a Second City improv group that I named Reverse Coma because I always thought it'd be funny if a really nice person went into a coma and woke up and became an a-hole because in every movie, when someone goes into a coma and comes back out, they suddenly realize the error of their ways and they become a really nice person. Uh, did you find that that was very cinematic and realistic, the idea that you came out of this event and wanted to be nicer and kinder and live a better life? No, it's the precise opposite. I don't know if you've ever like <laughs> yes, reverse coma. TV. Sweet, yeah, like <laughs> like a like you know like an episode of House. Someone will take an arrow to the dome, and it'll completely alter their personality, and not for the better. I was in that group because I bashed, I bruised uh, my temporal lobe, um, which is uh, what houses your sort of emotional discipline. You know, ah. and, and part of that is inhibiting your own fury, and. I damaged that, and when that happened, the receptors in my brain were not able to control my emotions as well as they had previously. So I was, in effect, in effect somewhat different personality-wise, and I had to go to therapy and things like that. But honestly, it's not all that different from what you hear from uh, former NFL players who have suffered from uh, wow. brain damage yeah. and have had their own personalities altered. Now, you know, am I, you know, am I Dick Buckets or anything like that? No. But, it, you know, that is something that is very common with traumatic brain injuries is that there is a, uh, a personality uh, shift, or there can be. And for some people, it can be extremely, extremely severe. And I know people who have had it happen. Uh, luckily for me, it just turned me into slightly more of an a-hole, but that was not good. Yeah. You had right, enough Drew. of that already. <laughs> it, it, speaking of that portion of yeah. you know, we're, we're opening ourselves up here. We, you know... Everybody knows that listens to this show that I live, eat, and breathe all things Raiders, and Sarah lives, eat, and breathe all things Bears. So we figured that we're having you on might be a good opportunity to tell us why our team sucks. So uh, let's yeah, start it, with the Raiders. It, it, if you just want to go in and, and hurt me, this is a chance. Go for it, brother. Yeah, let's preface this by saying that, that Drew is known for this. And by the way, it's Drew McGarry who's with us here on Spain and Fitz. He is known and for years has done a series called Why Your Team Sucks. We didn't just call him to ask because he suffered a traumatic brain injury that made him an a-hole. He specializes in this even pre-injury. All right, take it away. Why do the Raiders suck? Well, did you see Mark Davis's house today? Did you uh, see the yes. Death Star house? <laughs> yes. Okay. So like, and like, Start there. And, the and his haircut. <laughs> and the person who's selling it was like, it's definitely not cozy. Like, that was a selling point. Like, you're <laughs> never going to be comfortable in this house. Isn't that great? And he was like, it's not. We, did, we designed it purposely so that it doesn't feel very homey. Like, it's supposed to 
feel like like a damn hotel lobby when you walk into it. All these rich guys, they want to live in the nicest, fanciest Fairfield Inn they could possibly find, and that's Mark Davis. <laughs> I also like this line. The best thing about these Raiders is that every year they start out red hot, then Albert Breer and every other dip bleep start tweeting bleep like hmm i guess john gruden maybe knows a little something about football and then they finish eight and eight and miss the playoffs which is yeah, just something i've experienced with pits year after year like, why I like, drink, a nice upset, why like in october and gruden's in the in the locker room like tell you what boys we took <laughs> two and day and everyone's like oh my oh wow he's got it he's back and then they lose 40 to nothing three weeks in a row. <laughs> knock on wood if you're with me uh, uh there's a lot of reasons that the raiders wrong. suck but we're running out of time and i guess you do need to try to try to find a reason that the bears suck i don't know what it could be but give it a shot yeah very it's very hard to think of any <laughs> the chicago bears would be you know worthy of criticism or scrutiny i can't <laughs> like especially the quarterback position I yeah mean, mm-hmm. it so well decades now just just fabulously handled just meticulous in their efforts Mm, I like also your coach, still Matt Nagy, with Ryan Pace, still the GM, and Ted Phillips <laughs> is still the president. Uh, McCaskey, I was impressed with them this past season, especially during the six-game losing streak. Oh, oh wow. Um, yeah, they yeah. said that. They're yeah. like, wow, we really know how to lose and just lose well, and that's great. We're really yeah. good losers. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time to get into all the ways that they managed to lose and suck. Uh, but I also uh, am aware that uh, we are out of time. So we will just have to direct <laughs> people to the story if they want to try to read him really scraping the bottom of the barrel on both these teams and why they suck. It's at defector.com. Why your team sucks. You can find all of the teams, not just ours, but yours as well. And go check out the night the lights went out. It's out on October 5th this year. Drew McGarry with us. Thanks so much, Drew. Thanks, Drew. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Spitz. Spain and Fitz. I think you called you Spitz. Like yeah, you're Spitz. Sh- no, like I'm, I'm Svelte. I'm Svelte Fitz. Oh, and I'm that's true. Mm-hmm. You have been telling us about all your gains uh, and losses and, 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 and all that. Uh, we're going to rebuttal <laughs> some of what he said. Uh, we're going to have rebuttals for Drew on why our teams don't suck. Maybe next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. A swing and a miss and breaking for a second and getting there in time and then breaking for the plate is Otani and he's safe and the Angels just execute a double steal. Angels have been running like crazy the last two innings. That was a delayed double steal right there. The Angels manufacture a run and have a 6-2 lead. That's right, as if he doesn't already do enough. Shohei Otani stealing home as part of a three-run rally in the fifth for the Angels in their eventual 6-4 win yesterday. You heard it on Angels Radio AM 830. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Don't forget to tune in to an NL battle tonight as the Dodgers host the Braves. Coverage begins at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And if you're doing the math, yes, that means you get an extra half hour of Spain and Fitz tonight, taking you into that game. And right now we'll talk Shohei Otani and more baseball with ESPN MLB reporter Buster Olney. Buster, I mean, like he really needed to add to the resume. Here's Shohei doing something we haven't even seen from him before. Yeah, Sarah, two weekends ago, uh, we were with the Angels uh, in Williamsport uh, for the Little League Classic, and we were talking to Joe Madden, uh, the, the Angels manager, and he said that they have to constantly hold 
Otani back from stealing bases. Like, mm-hmm. however this is, message is conveyed, when he gets to first base, he's saying to the first base coach or he's signaling dugout, I want to go. I want to run. I want to go. And Madden said all year, you know, as they've uh, you know watched him go through this uh, the two-way regimen of being a position player, or, you know, being a hitter and pitching, the biggest thing that they've been trying to monitor are his legs. And Madden has been amazed by how, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis, Otani said, no, my legs feel good, my legs feel good. And, you know, the one way that they feel like they could save him would be from stealing bases. And he's like, nope, I want to run. I want to go. Let's go. I mean, it really is just amazing. And, uh, look, I, I really think that if he didn't play another game this year, he would still win the American League MVP. Yeah. So, Buster, with that being said on Shohei, I mean, we keep talking about putting all of this into some sort of perspective for context and legacy, but I- I'm looking forward. Like, is this something we're expecting this year, this type of Shohei? Is that you, what you think the new standard is year in and year out of what he's capable of doing? Is it sustainable? Uh, I agree with what Madden said to us that day when we were talking to him, that this might be a situation where we look back and think of the summer of 2000. Uh, you know, 2021 is something, and you know, what Otani's doing is something we might not see for another 100 years. I mean, the, the level of difficulty is so high. The bar is so high. You know, the idea that uh, a player could stay healthy uh, doing all this regimen, I don't think you could reasonably expect that. I, I you know, do think that, uh, you know, with his conversations with Perry Manassi and their general manager, with Joe Madden, they'll probably, you know, do the same next year, like monitor it day to day. But, that could change. Like we could have a situation where he gets a sore arm and suddenly, you know, half of what he's doing goes away. Or if he gets hurt, uh, you know, in his work as a designated hitter, you know, the, the pitching goes away. I, you know, I, so I, I, I tend to think of this as being an outlier and they'll just take it year to year and see how he feels. Buster only is with us here on Spain and Fitz ESPN MLB reporter. Uh, we thought that the Mets might spare a day from being the top of the headlines as there was the thumbs-down bias controversy. Then there was the walk-off win that kind of made things feel a little better. But no, the Mets GM uh, arrested on charges of a DUI coming from the home of the owner, Scott Cohen. What do you know about this story? Uh, to me, if you're Steve Cohen is the owner at this point, um, you can be conscience-free in whatever decision you make. And if he cleaned house from top to bottom, you couldn't blame him. I mean, I I couldn't think tonight uh, of a more unprecedented, disastrous first year than what he's had as owner. I mean, think about it. You know, Sandy Alderson comes in as team president. They try to hire a number of experienced people, uh, you know, guys who've done this job before. They all said no. Then they hired Jerry Porter. He gets banned for sexual harassment. The guy who replaces him, Zach Scott, is found allegedly, you know, asleep in his car at 417 in the morning in White Plains. Uh, and according to police, refuses the breathalyzer. Uh, and if you're Steve Cohen here, like, who are you trusting? Mm-hmm. You know, this is a team that, uh, you know, after some decisions made during the course of the year, they lost 11 games in the standings from July 31st to August 31st. Their first-round draft pick, Kumar Rocker, uh, was not signed because the Mets ignored red flags that other teams saw, uh, you know, questions about the, the health of Rocker's arm. Uh, everything uh, you actually had to have an executive stand up in a meeting the other day and tell the players, Hey guys, it's not a good idea to tell the paying customers how they should act. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it, it's really bad. And I would not be surprised if at some point Steve Cohen basically throws his, his hands up there. So, you know what? 
I'm going to bench all of you guys. We're bringing in somebody else. And a name to watch, I think, going forward is David Stearns, who runs the Milwaukee Brewers, who grew up in New York City as a Mets fan. He's got one year left on his deal. Sources tell me he would be a natural fit for that franchise. Hey, Buster, quickly, I want to follow up on that before before Fitz moves on. You mentioned not telling the paying fans how to act, of course, especially not when you've gotten your entire front office in shambles and all of your hirings are terrible. But you also had some really strong opinions about Javi Baez. I disagreed with them. I don't want to relitigate that. But after what you saw yesterday, the perfectly timed hustle play to get the win, do you think that softens what you thought was a disastrous free agency move for him? No, I, you know, I've talked to executives with, with some big market teams and they still think that this is going to, there are already questions about Javi because he has so much swing and miss and because of the streakiness of of the nature of his play. Um, And so that, you know, situation the other day, I think for some of the executives is going to raise some questions about his judgment. It's much more on the nature of his play. I do think That's all what of I was going to say. The nature of his play, I get. But as a guy, he's universally known for being as, as hard a worker and a guy who cares as much as anyone. So it seems strange that you would prioritize whether or not he made a bad decision on a thumbs down or not over, you know, obviously the strikeouts are the issue for me. Right. And, and absolutely. I, I do think all of it increases the likelihood that he goes back to the Cubs. Because the Fine Cubs know me. better than anybody. <laughs> I'm sorry? Fine with me. We welcome him back. We love Hobby around here. <laughs> yeah, I think he's going to go back there. Uh, you know, as you know, the, the, the Cubs made him an offer under $180 million in the spring of 2020. The pandemic hit, um, so they didn't uh, finish that negotiation at that time. He's going to be afraid in the fall. He's worth more to the Cubs than any other team. The Cubs' ownership right now is fighting the perception that it's cheap and isn't willing to pay players. Well, guess what? Javier Baez is going to be uh, somebody who would be important to them. And I think because they know him and that work ethic that you talked about and all the great parts of his game, like we saw yesterday, the base running that he has, I think he's going to be someone that they'll pursue this offseason, that they'll have a reunion in him with him rather than have one with Rizzo or, or Brian. All right, Buster, probably the most interesting matchup we have left going on in this entire race is San Francisco and L.A. out in the West. Who's going to win that thing and why? Fitzy, the Dodgers are going to win. Uh, you feel like the Giants, who have been the best story in baseball this year, the biggest surprise story, you know, they're like the marathoner that's now at mile 22 of the 26, and they're looking over the shoulder, and here comes the favorite. <laughs> and they just gathered momentum, uh, you know, since picking up Max Scherzer, you know, 5-0 and with a, or 4-0 and with a 1-5-5 ERA in his five starts. Trey Turner just absolutely crushing it. Their lineup is now so deep that Dave Roberts is telling Cody Bellinger, you know what, you're not good against left-handed pitchers. We're sitting you. A former MVP is a platoon player on the Dodgers. So they seem to be getting better. The Giants, on the other hand, seem to be fading a little bit. Uh, And let's face it, there's a lot at stake because these are the two best teams in baseball right now. And whoever doesn't win this division gets stuck with a one-game wild card. We're out of time, so one last question for you quickly, and it's Buster only with us here on the Goodyear Hotline on Spain and Fitz. Over the course of the rest of the regular season, can you name one team that you think is going to fade and one team you think is going to surge? I think the Padres are going to continue to fade. Mm. Uh, Their bullpen seems to be in shambles. Um, And I say watch the Toronto Blue Jays, not necessarily because they're a dynamic team, but because they get to play the Washington Generals of baseball, the, the Baltimore Orioles, eight more times. Yeah. Awesome stuff, Buster. Thanks for the time. See you guys. Thanks for only with us here. Uh, Another reminder, Braves Dodgers follow Spain and Fitz tonight right here on ESPN Radio coverage starting at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. 
coming up, we got smacked by a friendly foe again last night. I'll explain it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Don't forget to tune in to the That's What She Said podcast, hosted by Sarah Spain, fueled by Gatorade. We appreciate their continued support of women's sports journalists and athletes here at ESPN and everywhere. Whatever your path takes to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. That's right. Listen to the podcast. Justin Tinsley is my guest this week, and I do always appreciate and support Gatorade. Uh, we talk a lot about his new podcast about Nipsey Hussle and get into a bunch of other stuff. Also, someone just reminded me of uh, Ryan Reynolds, and I don't think it's possible for me to hate Canada now. That's fair. I mean, my favorite. Like, also, uh, Catherine yeah, O'Hara. Yeah. I would be remiss not to mention she's Canadian too. Oh my God, you're so right. I, I mean, all of all of that show, Blanks Creek, uh, yeah. is you know. I mean, that's. Wow, you're you're stacking them up. Plus, Avril Levine, call me Avril anytime. Uh, that's anytime your girls. That's one of your girls. No. One of your top. I'll, I'll drop everything for you, Avril. I love you. Uh, so yeah, Avril Canadian too. Uh, you know, so I, I I'm suddenly I, I think our plan to uh, create a rivalry with Canada might it's be not working. Uh, it's it too might nice. be falling apart. It might too be nice. falling apart. The kids apart. in the hall uh, are from Canada. Yeah, Strange you know what, Avril, If you just want to DM me, you can just DM me instead. You okay, now it's getting them. weird. You know, you're married and okay. all. I didn't say <laughs> anything about Ryan Reynolds. I just very, you know, casually. Ryan, you can subtly, DM me too. I mean, I'm not, I mean, you're just. He could slide into a lot Reynolds. of things is all I'm saying, but I didn't say that on the radio. <laughs> Unlike you, you made it weird. <laughs> oh, Avril, call me, please. Uh, all right. So uh, while in the, there's no easy way to segue, I'm not even going to try. We're just <laughs> this is a segue free show, Spain and Fitz tonight. Uh, but this is not a pressure free show because I'm going to buy that there is some pressure coming. And, and, and I say pressure with some understanding of what I'm about to say and why I'll get killed for it. But I think there's a little pressure on Belichick. Hear me out. As much as everybody loves everything that Bill Belichick does, and rightfully so, it's worked. There is a spot where I said last year repeatedly, you can't judge Tom Brady versus Bill Belichick in one year. They're on different time frames. Like Brady has to go out and win a Super Bowl right then. Belichick has to rebuild and restock the entire roster, the entire team. So we looked at last year with the opt-outs, and I look, even looked at last year taking the flyer on Cam. I look at all of that, and I say, okay, well, that didn't necessarily work out the way he thought it would, but that's not uncommon. Everybody makes that, that sort of mistake at some point in their careers. It's not a big deal. But when you look at this year, particularly, the Patriots went out and they spent more money than anybody in the offseason to get their roster to where they wanted to be, which, by the way, we constantly trash teams like Washington and Philadelphia for doing. And then they draft Mac Jones in the first round. And now all of a sudden, I'm watching our shows on our networks talking about how this is the beginning of a new dynasty. I don't think it's that simple. And I think there's some pressure to be put on Belichick if this doesn't work because now he's got his roster, he's got his quarterback, and there's no excuses. Yeah, Fitz, I think that there's an understandable excitement about Mac Jones who raced ahead of expectations over the course of this training camp and preseason. And I would say that that was very clear by the way the Patriots and Bill Belichick handled their quarterback situation. At every turn, 
even if you're trying to be weird and keep everybody guessing, you don't have Cam start with all the ones, start every preseason game, be the inevitable starter at every moment that you have a choice, unless you really believe that that's how things are going to go. And it wasn't until Cam took that break for COVID protocols that all of a sudden Mac Jones had the opportunity with the ones and the time with the ones to say, listen, whatever your plan was, throw it out the window. I'm well ahead of what you expected. And I do think that that is a little bit of a reason for some of the over-the-top excitement from a variety of different, you know, bloviating gas bags, as I like to call all of us. Um, I like that most of them are keeping a little bit of their wits about them and saying it's just the preseason or we have to wait and see. But there's a lot of enthusiasm over Mac just from what we've seen, and that might take a whole ton of pressure off Belichick if he's getting right back to a contending team with a rookie, no time needed to be waste, uh, wasted with which you know Jets and Dolphins and all those other fans pretty disappointed. But um, you know one of the one of the people saying that is someone who had a very good look at, at at these players. Here's Charlie Weiss on KJZ today. Mac might be a little bit ahead of where Tommy was at the time because Tommy kind of got screwed his his senior year at Michigan because Michigan was four feet and Drew Henson. So Tommy was only playing part-time, and it seemed like every time they needed somebody to rally the troops, it was Tommy every time. But as far as makeup and mentality, all the things that Tommy had, Mac reminds me exactly of Tommy. Now, Tommy's, you know, might be the greatest of all time, his first ballot Hall of Famer. Let's not put Mac in the Hall of Fame yet. He hasn't even played it down yet. Yeah, the end, he saved I mean, himself there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real truth. That Yeah, at the end, it's like at least he walked it back. By the way, how well do you have to know Tom to just call him Tommy that much? Tommy. That's, he that's said it the, seven I mean. times in that. Tommy. That's a, that's a Tommy count right there. I mean, I, 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 I respect it. Oh, that, that's fine. I've never understood that hockey locker rooms do all that all the time. They add the Y, and I'm like, you're elongating to make a nickname. Why would you do that? Like, if it's Fitz, why would you make it Fitzy? And you've made it longer. I don't understand the nickname game on that. I also don't understand some of the takes because that one at least got walked back at the end. Booger, the great Booger McFarland, my, my buddy Booger, who, by the way, I love you, man, and I need to remind you that before I crush you here. This is what he said on Greeny about the Patriots with Mac Jones. If Mac Jones stays healthy, which is always a big if in this contact sport, they will challenge the Buffalo Bills in the AFC East, which gives them an opportunity to challenge whoever comes out of the other division. They will be a top four team in the AFC. And I don't think anyone would have ever said that in the middle of the season last year when we were all having these conversations on talk radio about the demise of the Patriots. How soon have we forgotten that Bill Belichick has put a team together led by a rookie quarterback that if he stays healthy, they are a top four team in the entire AFC this season? Yeah, that's just that's wrong. That is just there's no way we can make that meteoric leap to suddenly say that everybody got worse in the process. Like you're telling me that the only difference at this point, like Mac Jones now is such a big difference that Buffalo needs to be on notice. I just I'm not buying that. And not just Buffalo, but you're telling me that for all the work of roster construction and quarterback play that's already been done, and I don't know, Cleveland's got to be sitting back here. Baltimore's got to be sitting back there. The Chargers are saying, hey, we've already got proof of concept. You've seen our rookie on the field for a year and have a reason to be excited about him. Like, you can run up and down. The Titans and the Colts are both sitting here saying, hello, do you know that we still play in this conference? Like, I think that is a short-sighted view. As much as I love Booger, he's absolutely wrong. Well, and uh, Booger is not in line with 
with Vegas and, and, and the books on this, at least, in terms of expectations for them to win it all. And, and, and I do think, like I said, the pressure goes up on Belichick because the high expectations now that people have when people are talking like this, they're not going to give. I, I, I guess if the first couple games, Mac looks a little bit slow, like he's still picking up the speed of the NFL, people will start to ratchet down those expectations. But, you know, I think Belichick's timeline just got a little faster in terms of the, the city and the fans expecting success from them. But same with the Bills, right? You were supposed to have this fairly lengthy, at least a couple years window without the Patriots breathing down your necks. And that's not the case anymore. Also, a lot of pressure for Cam, because I heard folks saying today, I know Sam Macho was one of them, that Cam might be done. We might not see him again because he's a guy who wants to be a starting quarterback. That's a lot of pressure on him to decide, how much do I believe in myself that I can go somewhere, technically be the backup, and then when I get a, a chance to get out there, prove to everybody that I still deserve a starting job? Or does he say, I don't have it, I don't want to be a backup, and I'm done? Because we're all speculating about where he could end up. And the question is, what does he want and how much does he believe in himself? Dan Orlovsky gave a great option on first take today, talking about a good landing spot for Cam, the Cowboys. When you are in that small grouping in the NFL, and candidly, there's about eight or ten teams every year that are in that group that it's legit for them. You cannot risk having to lose your starter for a game or two and then not having a capable backup. Just imagine if we fast forward to December or November or something like that. Dak Prescott has had to miss a game or two. God forbid, hope it doesn't happen. And the Cowboys are out of the playoff picture. We will be on television killing them because they did not have a capable backup. Cooper Rush, I believe, has thrown three passes. Yeah, I mean, it is true. It's kind of funny. You're like... If he doesn't want to be a backup in New England, why would he be a backup somewhere else? I don't know if it's that he didn't want to, and I don't even know that it was Belichick doing him a favor to go start somewhere. I think they just figured to themselves, we can't have Mac Jones try to take over this team and lead him when we've got a leader and a big personality like Cam and at practice every day. Yeah, but you also, if you're Orlovsky and you say you can't risk, this was his quote, you can't risk not having a capable backup, and he later called it negligent. Well, that's all of what Bill Belichick just did. Yeah. If we're going to say that, then we also have to turn around and say that Bill Belichick is taking that exact calculated risk as of right now. I mean, Hoyer's is better. Being neg- he's, yeah. he's thrown more passes, although Hoyer's just a, a just steady is, I guess, the word for it. Yeah, and Hoyer was re-signed to the practice squad today, and obviously a lot of people think he's going to be sort of there for yeah. a very long time as like a coach slash quarterback, but still, that's not the capable backup you had with Cam, so... They, they chose to let Cam go, which if Mac misses a game or two, I just wonder if we'll use the word negligent around Bill Belichick because it seems like we never do when it comes to the Patriots. We'll keep talking about pressure, but not just from the NFL side. There's pressure on one NBA franchise and what to do with one of their star players that is only starting to boil over even more. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We've been trying to get you guys on social to tell us a little bit about uh, why we should hate Canada. And Spain and Fitz Nation's been hitting us up on the Dr. Pepper uh, Twitter feed. I got one interesting response, Sarah, that I didn't even factor into this. And it's really, I, I don't know if it's more powerful we're making pluses and minuses here. Like, you know, we put Ryan Reynolds and Avril Lavigne respectively on the mm-hmm. plus list. But as Aaron Wade tweeted us just a few minutes ago, they can't even get bacon right. 
He's right. Canadian bacon is not okay. It's not, it's not bacon. Call it something else. Call uh-huh. it like Canadian ham. But you can't call it Canadian bacon. Like, maybe that's enough to, to sear everything. We're getting a lot of South Park uh, references, too. You know, but, uh, but I think Canadian bacon might, uh, might be the, the thing that tips the scales for me. You know what's tipping the scales for me, Fitz, uh, is that this started out as a joke. And I think that's very clear. Like, we joked about all the wonderful things about Canada. We very clearly made the question ridiculous. Since they keep beating us at things, should we hate them now and why? Uh, And I was going to give Canadians a break for maybe being too nice to not get the joke. Like, maybe they're so pure and nice they don't get sarcasm. But now I'm going to actually hate them. Because the responses I'm getting are... Boy, she's sour as hell, isn't she? It's not a good look. No, I'm having fun with it. Or, no, I don't think you should need a reason to not hate an entire group of people, but because their sports team beat yours is not it. Hating is never cool. Like Canada, you've 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 offered us a lot of funny people. Where are they? Because they are not the people in Mementis who clearly yeah, don't yeah, yeah. get the bit. Yeah, don't don't be that guy or girl. Like, there's just a moment here where you know you you can't you can't be nice and and funny and all these things and then we blow are it very up clearly like, joking. Or like, no, USA needs to just get better and beat them. Yeah, duh. Yeah, duh. Like that's the the, the, the we're, we're joking. You beat our you know butts. What? We're salty. My God. And now we're joking that we're gonna hate the whole country for it, which doesn't make any sense. Clearly, I'm starting to wonder about you, Canada. Here, this one. Or is the competition just catching up? Wouldn't you want to play better competition and get better? Yeah, duh. What's wrong with you people? Look, uh, I'd never thought of it, frankly. You know, the the concept of just trying to get better at things. I can never, (laughs) never imagined that that could be a concept. Maybe the Blue Jays have never thought of it either. Oh, wow. Just throwing some shade. Wow. Maybe all the Canadian teams that haven't won a Stanley Cup in forever have forgotten about that, too. Yep. All right. Speaking of not getting any better, the Philadelphia 76ers not getting any better and the drama around them is also not improving. And and look, this is sort of what we just expect at this point. You know, there are certain things like if you've ever watched America's Next Top Model, you know, uh, you can like set a clock to the episode where they're all going to get a makeover and somebody's going to cry because their hair gets cut off. Like, you know, these <laughs> things are going to happen, right? Someone has well, to hold uh, a snake. <laughs> I mean, it's inevitable, right? So it's inevitable when you see beef between a player and a team in the NBA that it's going to escalate, and eventually the player's going to say, you know what, I'm not coming. And now we're starting to hear reports that Ben Simmons may not report to camp, and he's going to stay away because he doesn't like the fact that they've given everything over to Joel Embiid, and he doesn't like the way the fans have treated him, and he doesn't like the way the organization's treated him, all of these things. So uh, I was driving in, and uh, I was listening earlier, and I was listening to our buddy Cliff the Philly superfan ESPN producer, and he is a lifelong Philadelphia. Like, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, he called into radio shows from the parade. Like, Philly Philly and Cliff are sort of synonymous. <laughs> this is what he said about the Sixers situation. Listen, Joel Embiid has every right to say, stop using my name for stories for your fodder. But here's the thing. This man, Ben Simmons, hasn't gotten any better since we drafted him. Number one overall in 2016, and now he wants to complain and say, I want out of Philly after we showed him love for the last five years and he hasn't improved on anything? How is this our fault? How can you spin this on us? What did we do? Now it's our fault because you don't want to get better. You don't want to improve. We keep getting bounced out of the second round every single year, even though we're supposed to trust the process for the last seven years. And it's the fans' fault? 
Come on, bro. You can't do that anymore. I agree. And I th- I'm glad he started with the part about Embiid because I think that would be incredibly frustrating. Um, it was in the Philadelphia Inquirer story by Keith Pompey that Simmons met with the front office of the Sixers uh, to tell them that he didn't want to stay with the team. And then USA Today's Jeff Zilgit added, quote, a rift had been escalating between Simmons and Embiid. And that was a factor in the situation to which Embiid said, sources, trust me, bro, stop using my name to push people's agendas. I love and hate drama. I love playing with Ben. Stats don't lie. He's an amazing player, and we all didn't get the job done. It's on me personally. I hope everyone's back because we know we're good enough to win. So he said a lot in there, Fitz. First of all, stats don't lie is basically like he didn't shoot a single shot in the fourth quarter for four straight games, and also he didn't take a dunk. But then he goes to he's an amazing player. Then he goes to we all didn't get the job done. It's on me personally. And then he goes to I hope everyone's back. Either way, he's right to say if this is not true, which we don't know for sure, that the media is making up stuff and blaming it on him, then that's BS because Simmons, the front office, the fan base, and his own ability to play or not is the reason that all of this is happening. It's not about Embiid. Yeah, and at some point, what everybody has to accept is the reality they're living in. And the reality right now is that Ben Simmons may want to play somewhere else. But if I'm Philly, I'm looking at all of this saying, okay, I I get that and I feel you on it. But I'm not going to give you away for a bag of Tostitos. Like, it's not going to happen. You've gotta, there's got to be some sort of equity in return. I'm not sure that there's any equity that anybody's going to give up when we're all still thinking about what we just saw from Simmons in the playoffs. Like, I, I know that we have smart NBA minds here that have been telling us on TV over the course of the last month that he has value. And I don't doubt that. I just don't know right now that he has market value that he should have for who he can be as a player when he's played the way that he played in the playoff series. I don't think that anybody's going to shake that out of their mindset. And unfortunately for Simmons and for Philly, I don't think there's any way they can move on from each other. It feels like it's a a house going through a divorce. And unfortunately, they have to continue to live together because neither of them can afford to live apart right now. Well, to your point, you don't want to give him up for a bag of Tostitos. Unfortunately, that's what a whole lot of people in the league seem to think he's worth. Now, this team, despite the fact that Simmons is a very flawed player, has been great. They have the NBA's third best winning percentage over the last four years during the regular season, only behind the Bucks and the Raptors, who are two teams who won titles. That may be what Embiid is talking about when he said stats don't lie instead of some sort of veiled shot at Simmons. But I just think that regardless of whether they can get back exactly what they think is a fair trade, it is time to move on even without Ben Simmons demanding his way out. For me, it feels like they've tried it. It doesn't work. It works well, but not enough. And if in the end, you're at the point with this team, after trusting the process and with Embiid, that it's win or bust, then that's it. You you aren't going to win with this. It doesn't feel like you're going to win with this. I hate giving up early when there are other teams that I've said, keep at it, teams like the Bucks, keep building, keep growing. In this case, I just think that I, I think Simmons, besides his teammates' frustration and the fan frustration, that, that duo just needs to be split up. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think we're going to look back at this chapter and say what might have been for a lot of the greatness that they have. You know, we look so often at, at periods in NBA, and we can justify why t- teams didn't win more based on what they were facing. This feels like there was a window of opportunity for Philly to have been better through all of it. It's unfortunately... It's unfortunate they haven't been able to work it out. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio.